He's so cute. He's 35 pounds if nothing more. Say hi to the people, Elvis. Elvis, say hi. Woof, woof, woof. <laughs> <laughs> you should bork. Go bork, bork. bork. You would bork any other time. Hey. <laughs> he said the old he said the only thing that he was concerned about was his, uh, his hawks. And I went, Oh, you see his cankles and he was just like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My poor pup's got cankles. <laughs> You're so fat. Just like me. Just like all of us. What do you say in forty years? Elvis is, it, is he, all of us. In 40 years, he's only met a dog. He's only met like four dogs that's been their exact weight, what they should be. <laughs> oh, he's actually his right weight? No. No. Oh. <laughs> no. Pugs, corgis, and uh, dachshunds, dachshunds love to eat. Well, yeah. I think he said probably, I think 15 pounds is what he said is the weight that they're supposed to be. <laughs> That's my nipple. <laughs> oh, dude, he plays rough, dude. <laughs> well, he went to bite his foot and he bit me on the pit. <laughs> so I take any advantage, man. That's what Dad taught me. Take any advantage. Little corgi loaf. Did you fall? <laughs> Scar, brother! No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. There he goes. <laughs> Gravity takes over, Elvis. Okay, go lay down. Oh, God. Yeah, like that's going to happen. <laughs> he will. Happen. He will. He's a good boy. Don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Long time no see. You've been gone for most. Don't you tell me how to act. <laughs> well, okay, so you were gone, and then I got a toothache, and uh, then Josh I, has been at work forever. And you had migraines, and so we've not been here, and here we are. Three weeks? Yeah, we kind of went a little long. Uh, he should tell by eight, it's showing our ages. Or is it just me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, what's going on? Did you find something? Stuff. Hi. Ooh. Ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. A very rare occasion we let Professor Albus in. He's been through some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's been sick too, so we, we finally got him straightened out. <laughs> His hair is growing back. <laughs> yeah, he's not bald-ish anymore. He's not as bald as he was. He We walked into the vet and he was like, Oh, look at that naked corgi! And I was like, He's not nearly as naked as he was. <laughs> For all you people that are not from here in Appalachia. Naked. <laughs> <laughs> naked, naked. He was naked. naked. <laughs> he was bald. N-E-K-K-I-D. Huh. He naked. was naked. <laughs> uh, so Christine DeMeo and I don't know if it's DeMeo or DeMeo DeMeo, DeMeo Christine, you're just going to have to tell me um, she reached out to us and wanted us to talk about urban legends which we've been toying with the fact urban legends oh I Ooh. forgot to silence my phone <sighs> Typhoon treasure <laughs> urban legends Bork. oh Oh, 
Oh. There's Borks. Is there a red berm in there? There is, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That was his nemesis. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so she wanted us to talk about urban legends. And uh, urban legends kind of fascinate me, so I was all on board for that. But really, this episode's turning into urban legends slash folklore slash fairy tale. Well, <laughs> I mean, urban legends are a genre of folktale yeah. anyway. That's true. So. That's true. Yeah, contemporary legends. Stories that are like circulated as true. Um, and they always usually start with like, I know this guy, this friend of a friend, or a friend of a family member. And sometimes they're entertainment, but usually they have a moral associated with them too, even yep. if it's like kind of hidden deep down in there. Yeah. Some urban legends do come out to be true, like something that I'm going to be talking about tonight. Yeah, well, yeah, mine too. They're usually circulated orally, but they can be spread, you know, numerous ways. Mine too. There's all kinds of black dogs around. Literally, there's one right there. Yeah, he's... Well, he's... He's I'm, partially black. He's burnt. He's a burnt loaf. Yeah, he's a burnt loaf. <laughs> <laughs> but they've actually been called urban legends. What you... <sighs> I can hear everything he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Professor Albus. <laughs> hey, come on. He pranced. Give me the WTF look. <laughs> Do you need that? Other bedroom, Dad. He's so spry right now. He's so happy. <laughs> the term urban legend has been around since about 1968. Uh, there was a dude who was a professor of English at the University of Utah, and he's the one that kind of coined the term. So, yeah, that's where that came from. Hmm. And I've grown up here in, I mean, tons. So, like... We, and every areas are different. I think that's what's fascinating about yeah. them. Everybody has kind of their own. And I didn't even think about to talk about the one from one of the ones from this area that like the goat man. Have you heard about the Kentucky goat man? The, the uh, oh, the goat man's like that's a big one just in the south in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's who wants to go first? Who wants to talk about some spoopy stuff? I also have the bunny man. Oh, the bunny man. I can, yeah. I, I, can, I can start off. One that's fascinated me. Actually, I got two, but this one is the shortest of the two. And it did, it did, it did fascinate me because me and Tessa really, I mean, if you look on our Instagram, me and Tessa are always talking about going down to Gatlinburg. And we explored Cades Cove the last time and we was there. And Cades Cove has a lot to do with Cherokee history. And so that got me looking up some Cherokee urban legends or Cher Cherokee stories. And there's one that's fascinating that's really creepy, um, but yeah, really fascinating at the same time. It's the uh, tale of the Moon-Eyed People. Oh, and, yeah, I know and, this one. And then when I, when I, told Ted, when I, when I first um, read this, I, I immediately t uh, texted Tess and I was like, you've got to read this story, you know, you've got to read this. Um, but it's, uh, according to a Cherokee legend... And it's long before they, they even moved into the Smokies. Um, they discovered a small bearded uh, small race of bearded white men uh, who lived in the mountains. 
And according to author Julia Montgomery Street, um, whose tales are displayed in the Cherokee County Historical Museum. Which we need to go to. Which we need to and go I've to. tried to talk you into going to every time we've been I on vacation. Now because this yeah. is where, because <laughs> our books and stuff are displayed there. Uh, the man possessed the uh, possessed all the land from Little Tennessee River to Kentucky, so they possessed a long, mm-hmm. broad stretch of, of land, with a line of fortification from one end of their domain to the other. The men who lived in round log cabins had large blue eyes and fair white skin, and the sun blinded them during the day, and they only emerged from their homes at night to hunt fish, wage war, and build their fortifications, hence the moon people, um, because they could only see in the dark. The Cherokee called them the moon, the race of moon-eyed people. Hmm. Uh, and some people believe that they were descendants of the Welshmen who come to America uh, long before the Spanish uh, ever settled in the Smoky Mountains. Mm-hmm. Wanda Stalkup, she's the director of the Cherokee County History Museum in Murphy, North Carolina. And the museum is home to the statue that was found in the conflux of the valley of, um, found at the conflux of the valley and Hisswell rivers in the early 1800s. And the soapstone statue is 37 inches tall and weighs 300 pounds. And many believe it's the uh, picture, you know, it's the statue of the Moon-Eyed people. But also, tell you one, one that also always fascinates me when I read it is the Mothman. So, oh yeah. And. It is a Point Pleasant, West Virginia, mm-hmm. back in the 1966. If you don't know of the story, <laughs> it uh, the Mothman usually forewarns of danger. Yeah. Well, was it the, that he terrorized uh, terrorized them for what, like two weeks, something like that, and then just kind of. Uh, disappeared. Yeah, and then that's when the bridge, that's when the famous, famous bridge it collapsed, you know, right? collapsed. Yeah, yeah. It killed like 34 or some people. Yep. And he f- supposedly forewarned people that it was going to happen, or... Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, he went He went on for like, yeah, months. And then mm-hmm. 10 days before Christmas in 1967, um... The Silver Bridge that connected Point Pleasant to Galapagos, Ohio, was teeming with rush hour traffic. The bridge collapsed, killing 46 people. 46 ah. people. And some people claim to have seen the Mothman at the bridge shortly before its collapse. And that's that continued, uh, that started the legend that he was a hairbringer of doom. Hmm. And also, I really like the Mothman movie with Richard Gere. I yeah. like, I don't know if I've watched that. It's good. It's good. I've not watched that for forever. Oh, yeah, it's been forever since I've watched it. Yeah. So, anybody else got anything spoopy? There's... Spoopy! <laughs> spoopy! There's uh, there's urban legends that are specific to the Cherokee tribe that I'd never heard of. And since you were talking about that, it made me interested in it. There's lots of those. I could talk about one that uh, my story's based on. Ooh. Yeah. Let me, let me find the exact name of them again, because it's something crazy. Like, and this I, one's called... Um, Atagahi, the Enchanted Lake. According to Cherokee tradition, there is an enchanted lake hidden deep within the Smoky Mountains that humans cannot see. This is a magical lake that's an oasis for animals of every kind with thousands of of birds and fish and reptiles and bears enjoying its water. 
In the story, the lake revealed itself to a young Cherokee man after he was fasting for days and praying continuously for days. Having proven that he had no intention to hunt at Atagahi, the pure-hearted pure man is permitted to see the lake's stunning waters and teeming wildlife. And when his vision ended, the man marks the location of the secret lake with a pile of rocks. So I've never heard that before. A short time after this discovery, a terrible winter brings the Cherokee to the brink of starvation. Faced with no other choice, the hunter returned to Atagahi to bring food back to his family. When he shoots a bear with his bow, however, the animal fell into the purple water and emerged unscathed. The bear tells the trespasser that he has betrayed them and the young man is attacked by a furry horde of animals. After the snowstorm passes, the Cherokee found his body, but there are no tracks from the bears who mauled him. And though, and so after that, Atagahi was forever sealed off from human intervention after his treachery. But the legend is that you can still see the morning mist rise from the magic lake when you stand at the top of Klingman's Dome, hmm. which is the highest point in the Smokies. FYI. But yes, I've never heard that before, but that's really cool. Huh. Huh. Now we have a proper stone cleansman done. Yeah, well, I've always kind of wanted to, but I've been slightly sort of broken, so I didn't know if I yeah. could get up to it. But it's uh-uh. it's paved. It's like a paved trail, so I probably could. Huh. And then this that's, one, that's this one is a medicine man battles a horned snake. This is the tale of, and I'll never say this right, Aganuntisi. Aga Our famous N- quote, it's history told by idiots, not <laughs> history told by scholars. Aga so. Nunitsi. A-G-A-N-U-N-I-T-S-I. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shawnee medicine man who's captured by the Cherokee in battle. Right before he's going to be tortured, he strikes a deal with his captors. If they free him, the medicine man promises that he'll bring the Cherokee the fabled Ulunsuti. A special diamond with magical properties. This jewel is nearly impossible to procure because it rests in the forehead of the Uctena, a fearsome horned serpent. The Uctena shows up a lot in uh, Cherokee fables. He was released, and so he goes to find the diamond and the snake who's wearing it. So he travels far and wide, and he meets many serpents and reptiles, but none of them are the Uctena. At long last, he finds it sleeping atop a mountain. So he lays a trap for the Uctina. He digs a trench at the foot of the mountain and protects it with a circle of blazing pine cones. He wakes up the enormous snake by shooting an arrow into its heart. That's a very rude awakening. The furious Uctina chases him, but when the medicine man jumps into his trench, the serpent's poison cannot pass the circle of fire. Only a tiny drop of poison lands on his head as the snake sprays its venom. Eventually, the Uctina dies from the arrow lodged in its heart, and the magician calls all of the birds in the forest so they can feast on his feast on its remains. After seven days, he returns to find the glittering Ulunsunti diamond waiting for him where the snake was devoured. With the magic jewel in his possession, he becomes the greatest medicine man in his community. For the rest of his life, however, he sports a tiny snake hanging from his head where the single drop of the venom landed, although although he never notices that it is there. Huh. Hmm. There's more than that, but that's the only two that I'm going to read. Hmm. But yeah, that's really cool. 
Ooh, there's a book about it. I want it. <laughs> there's uh, another story from the Cherokee about uh, the Nunehi, which are the travelers. Supposedly, it's these. It's a group of uh, shapeshifters. They. Uh, one story goes that there was a little boy who was out fishing by a river. It starts getting late, and he's uh, worried about, you know, going home in the dark and all that. And uh, he sees one of the members of his tribe, and he's like, come over here to our house. We're having a party, you know, basically. And, like, there's all these people there that he's never seen before, but then there's a few people that he did recognize. And, uh... The next day, he leave, like he ends up staying the night there, has all this great food. Then the next day, he gets ready to go home, and all of it, all the members of his tribe are out looking for him, and they're just like, "Where have you been?" He's like, "I, I was with so and so at uh, at this house over here," and he took them, and well, the guy was with them. He's like, "I never saw you last night." He was like. Yeah, he did. It was like, we were at this house over here. And he takes them to the house, and the house isn't there anymore. And you could hear drums. Huh. Uh, there's several instances of stories like that happening. Where these people were always peaceful. They never caused any problems. What did you say they were called? The Nunehi. Hmm. Yeah. The Nunehi. Mm-hmm. And every time that they left an area, you could hear drums in the clouds that's really cool yeah yeah that's really cool <laughs> so i think we have an idea for a next podcast <laughs> cherokee <laughs> urban legends yeah. <laughs> there's, well, I mean, there's like so yeah. many really cool things there's a lot of i am a storyteller and i love to tell stories and urban legends are just stories you know so I mean, they have basis in truth, but they're still stories. But I, yeah. I love things like that, and I love it when there's like the traditional stories where somebody will take and tell something to describe why something is the way it is, if that yeah. makes sense. Like, there's a really super, super cool story about why the Smoky Mountains are called the Smoky Mountains. And I won't tell it to you now. I'll wait until we decide to do another episode. <laughs> but it's really like one of my favorite stories ever. And it's very <clears throat> much like a, it's it's a Cherokee story told to <clears throat> me by a Cherokee man. Yeah. Huh. So I would I would definitely share it with you That's awesome. later. Well, I'll just, I'll just go ahead and get my, my last one out of the way. Um, and it's kind of an urban legend slash folk tale slash true <laughs> because i'm a descendant of this story uh my great great my great grandmother uh flory caldwell was a descendant of these of these individuals and uh you know even to this day people say that they don't exist but there's there's evidence out there that they exist i mean there's there's just plain evidence can you th- can you think of what he's talking about before he even yeah. says it uh I'm not sure. The reason why I have this hump on my back. Yeah. I'm not sure that I know this right. one, actually. Well, okay. well, well, you do. You we'll just talk, really we'll talk about um, it. Uh, you know, uh, 
like Tesla said there a few minutes ago, the Appalachian Mountains are just home to all kinds of mysteries. And in 1690, when the French fur traders was coming through the wilderness of Southern Appalachia. <laughs> Uh, here. <laughs> the, here, yeah. They came across an odd sight. The expedition hacked their way, and I'm and I have to say too that I've never known the really backstory history behind this behind this tale. Um, and the expedition hacked their way through thick underbrush, and they emerged into this massive clearing that was populated with neatly lined cabins, and the people were olive-skinned, who had European features beards, light-colored eyes and hair, and who spoke a strange, broken form of Elizabethan English. Elizabethan English, yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, You're welcome. The French explorers became convinced that they had found a group of displaced Moors who had colonized the New World, but the find was more or less dismissed and forgotten about. Over the years, further reports trickled in from native people of the area describing a mysterious, light-skinned people with strange customs living deep within the wilderness. But none of these tales were taken seriously and were mostly seen as folklore or superstition. Um, it wasn't until nearly a century after the French founded the area or discovered the area that these tribes would stumble uh, that in in what's we'll that the local tribes would stumble across this group again. This time by a Frenchman named John Xavier in the Newman's region region in the Upper East Tennessee. So that's close close to home. Once again, the villagers had distinctly European features and spoke a former broken English. They called themselves the Porsche or Melungeons. Oh, okay. And referred to each other with Anglo surnames. When asked their origins and ancestries, they were unable or unwilling to reply. Maybe they are the lost colony of Roanoke. That, that's where this is going. That is it really? Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were unable or unwilling to reply. A mystery made more confounding by the tribe's lack of any written records and general aversion to discussing such matters. Much to the surprise of the explorers, these Melungeons got along peacefully with other native tribes, which other explorers and expeditions couldn't. Hmm. So like the Cherokees and all that stuff who seemed hostile towards... I'm not going to say invaders, but yeah. expeditions. We got you. Uh, you know, that these group of light-skinned olive people was able to communicate with the Cherokees and the Indians and, you know, all others. Uh, and as more settlers poured into the region, some Lungeons got many people scratching their heads. Just who were these strange people? Um, English-speaking native people were lightly out of skin. And nobody knows. Nobody knew. Nobody could figure it out. Theories about it ranging from the idea that they were the lost tribe of Israel to the theory that that they were from, um, that they were shipwrecked explorers or even the lost colony of Roanoke. Huh. Sweet. So, in the end, it just still remains a mystery. Hmm. So, and they... And just like every other tale is, is as the more Europeans poured in, poured in, they would become, in the early 1800s, or in the early 19th century, they were designated as a free persons of color, which entitled them to own no land, entitled them to own no estates, Uh and so they were forcefully removed from the ancestral lands Mm. and just scattered across across the area. So... Um, yeah. I never knew the history of Melungeon, but it's, I mean, like, people 
around here still talk about Melungeons all the time. That's that's what like the old family saying is that we get like the little humps at the top of our back from yeah. Melungeon blood or whatever. I don't huh. know. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, I, I told you about before my great grandmother, Flora uh, Caldwell, my mom's grandmother. She, she, if she wasn't, I don't know what because she was very pale skinned. But when she'd go out in the sun, uh -huh. her skin would turn the color of that notebook right there. Mm -hmm. Shapeshifter. <laughs> and her eyes were as blue as mine, and she would have long, curly black hair, huh. like an African-American. I mean, I'm not stereotyping, but usually that's what you... And her skin, when her hands were very American, American Indians. Yeah. You know, they, you know how they kind of, like American Indians, have that distinct wrinkles and stuff on their hands mm -hmm. and, and cracks and stuff hers would be like that and she would walk with uh huh, huh. she would walk so she was she was and she didn't know her ancestry i mean i it think was odd that she didn't know. are very interesting yeah. like i have i had it wrote down in my notes that we should do like a whole episode about malentians <laughs> but yeah i think that that's really cool um yeah, and the, and the odd thing about that was is when if you ask her her background, her history, she I mean she only knew her mom and dad. Hmm. She what she didn't know nothing, you know. I feel like that would be a fun research project for me. It would. It would be very. It's like the blue fugits. Yeah, it would make a good. As the blue <laughs> would make a good. Uh, would make a good paper. And sometimes it's really funny because the traits, the Melungeon traits. Sometimes can skip generations, yeah, and come out much later. Like you'll have, you know, a couple of generations of a family that all look similar because, you know, genetics. But then, and all of a sudden, you'll have another kid, and that kid looks nothing like the rest of your family because yeah. the traits are so strong. Hmm. And, and it is odd because with my great with my great grandmother, uh, when we done ancestry dot com. And we started doing background searches and stuff like that. We did have a Cherokee princess in our in her line, along with uh, African American blood. So it's <laughs> so it's very very interesting. It is very interesting. I think genealogy period is very interesting. Like when we got mom's DNA results back, I thought it was so cool. We we had like she. She was a uh, mostly Irish and Welsh and Scottish, but then she had like three percent. She was Ashkenazi Jewish, and we never knew that. Like, came from nowhere. That's the like the same bloodline that I have. We're related. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but oddly enough, the writer of this article goes on to say that. Uh, They've joined mainstream society, and many of them still reside in the most remote and poverty-stricken areas of southern Appalachia. Oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> Some, I, I randomly looked this up. Some physical characteristics associated with Melungeon descendants include a ridge or a bump on the back of the head or back. Uh, shovel I've... teeth. What are shovel teeth? Your teeth are, uh, like this. Like, kind oh. of like a shovel. Oh, like well, I have that too. I must be descended from them too because... Finger, when you put your finger in here, yeah. it kind of feels like a shovel. Yeah, mine, mine hooks shovel. back. Oh, I've got shovel teeth. Yeah, I have the, the bump on the back I've of my head. I've done learned something. 
and on my top of my back. Yeah, mine. And the only reason why I know that is because my my uh, um, archaeology professor huh. was talking about the uh, Melungeons, and uh, she wasn't afraid to go around the uh, classroom and jab her thumb up in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> She was weird. I like it. <laughs> just imagine her like taking your forehead, just no. like bending your head back, and sticking her finger in your yeah. mouth. <laughs> she she wasn't afraid at all. <laughs> the most likely origin of the word melungeon is from the French term melange, which means mixture. Uh, it also has been attributed to an archaic African word melungo, which means companion or comrade. Comrade. So. Hmm. Hmm. All right, otters. Let's get back on topic. <laughs> so, speaking of the Irish and Celtic and Welsh descendants, uh, I'm primarily Welsh, and Welsh culture has a, a big urban legend: the Black Dogs. Yeah. Dun dun dun. dun. <laughs> Let me. Let me break out my big dictionary of superstitions here. Serious black. <laughs> By the way, the, the term the, the term melungeon uh -huh. was intended to be a racial slur. Oh, nice. Yeah. The Haskerfield. Uh, <laughs> so, according to uh, the Dictionary of Superstitions by David Pickering, uh, a black dog is a spectral dog of ancient English tradition, which is reputed to appear at places associated with death. Many churchyards and isolated graves claim a black dog in local superstition, and sightings have also been reported at sites where murders have been committed. It's definitely the grim. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's definitely what she based the grim off of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, descriptions vary. Some dogs apparently have having huge eyes, while others lack heads altogether. Locals speak fearfully at the howling of the black dog, and many claim that the devil himself often manifests in such a form. Ooh. Yeah. So, like, black dogs were also something that, like, people believed that you know, demons and witches and everything used as familiars and all these other kinds of things. Not all of them were malevolent. Like, you have uh, one called... Uh, that's what it's called. No. <laughs> that's how you call it. That's how, that's how you call it. Yes. Albus is like outside going, I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> Here's the song of my people. <laughs> There's a story about a um a dog. Like a I guess it's an I guess it's an urban legend that's kind of native to down where y'all are from. In well, it comes from Doty Creek. Uh -huh. The Doty Creek. Ghost dog. Yeah. Yeah. What was that story? Do you know that story, Tyrell? Yes. It's like, I don't remember. It's, it, falls, it, like in, the it owner? falls into the same family of yeah. like, mysteries because it's a black dog. Yeah. And the, didn't the owner, the owner like got killed and uh -huh. it yeah. goes and waits or yeah. something? Uh-huh. Waits. Uh, but doesn't it guard the hauler? The hollow. Well, for, guards. The hollow. Well, I mean, you know, you know what's holler rats? Holler so, rats. Dotty Creek, we always, we never feared it. <laughs> yeah, that's where Josh is from. Yeah. That's where our family and I've lives. Heard it, I've heard it on occasions. I've heard it on multiple occasions. 
up in the hills at night. I don't know how we didn't die whenever we were young up in mm -hmm. Dodie Creek. That's a different <laughs> story for a different day. Multiple, multiple nights. You would hear a howling. I wish that you had. From. I wish you had known us then. You would have had fun with us. <laughs> in the village of Northorp and the West Lindsay district of Lincolnshire, uh, the churchyard was said to be haunted by a barghest, which are really big black dogs with big teeth. Sometimes they have horns. Uh, some black dogs are said to be human beings with the power of shape-shifting. So, this is also the origin of your werewolves. Um, in another nearby village, there lived an old man who was reputed to be a wizard. It was claimed that he would transform into a black dog and attack his neighbor's cattle. It's uncertain if there was any connection between the bar guest and the wizard. But then you, you also had these ones that, like, they guarded churchyards. Like... Because grave robbing was a, a thing back in the day. Uh, like, they would guard the churchyards and attack grave robbers. Mm -hmm. You had... Uh, but then you had the really bad ones, like... Uh, the uh, the Black Hound of Dartmoor. That's... Uh, you probably know this one, Josh. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, in... Southern Devon, the notorious squire Richard Cabell was was said to have been a huntsman who sold his soul to the devil. When he died in 1677, black hounds are said to have appeared around his burial chamber. The ghostly huntsman is said to ride with black dogs. And this tale inspired... The Hound of the Hound of the Baskervilles. That's where I've... Yeah, because actually Sherlock mentions it in, in, in it. Uh-huh. Because in the story, he's the only ironclad person in the story because he's, you know, uses thoughts and reason. So he's just like, let's go find it. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's, like, everybody's like, no, you're stupid. <laughs> <It's not." laughs> but there's like tons and tons of these of accounts of the black dogs. You have the bar guests. You have the black dog of Ellsbury. You have the black dog of Lyme Regis. You have the black dog of Newgate. The Black Dog of Dodie Creek. The Black Dog of Dodie Creek. The Black Dog of Tring. Uh, the Black Shuck. Uh, the Capplethwaite. And then you have my personal favorite, which is uh, the Coon Anun. I can't say the that. What? The Coon Anun. Coon Anun. Spelled C-W-N-A-N-N-W-N. Coon Anun. Is... Uh, the, the Hounds of Anun, which is the Welsh version of the other world. Sounds like a Welsh death metal band. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, it'd be an appropriate name. Like the <laughs> yeah. Aron, King of Anun, is believed to set the Kun Anun less, uh, loose to hunt mundane creatures. When Poish, spelled P-W-Y-L-L, Welsh uh, is fun. Welsh is fun. Yeah. Uh, saw the coon Anun take down a stag. He set his own pack of dogs to scare the, uh, to scare them away. Aron then came to him and said that as repentance for driving away the coon Anun, Poish would have to defeat Hofgon, which was another king of the other world. Yeah. 
Later on, the Christians would name these dogs uh, the Hounds of Hell, which also goes into, it ties into Cerberus, it ties into, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Garmer. Uh, what's the Norse one? That's what I'm sitting here trying to think. The big one. Fluffy the three-headed Fenrir. Fenrir, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Fenrir. Yeah. So, yeah, like, you have tons and tons of black dog legends. Even, like, the black dog of Doty Creek. <laughs> Even go local, which, you know, this area is primarily Irish and Scottish. Yeah, and so it's English natural. and Welsh. And this area was settled by the scots and irish people they, uh -huh. they're the ones that settled it first really and when they came over they brought their legends and customs and traditions oh, with yeah. them including like the banshee um, the banshee and uh rawhead the, and bloody bones yeah the banshee is uh that one's the base for you know all your stories of uh, the lady in white roaming the roadways and stuff like that yep. Yep. yeah the banshee is uh to blame for all of those Rawhead and Bloody Bones was a warning for children not to go near bodies of water by themselves because, yeah. I mean, you know, it was to keep them safe. But uh -huh. they would just say that Rawhead and Bloody Bones likes to eat children and he'll come up out of the water and snatch you. It was always taught to me as Rawhide and Bloody Bones. Rawhide and Bloody Bones. Mm-hmm. And that story, that story is a very interesting one because it's evolved a whole lot. Yeah. Since it was originally told. Uh-huh. It's very interesting, though. That's uh -huh. that's just what I like about urban legends and folk tales and stuff that they yeah. just evolve. <laughs> My mamaw told me that one about our about the well at their house. Didn't go near the well for months. Cause yeah. raw head and bloody bones <laughs> yeah. was in there, and yeah. he gonna get you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then no, I love it. Tell me and my brother those stories because we just tried to went and hunt it. And then that caused my papa <laughs> even more grief because they didn't have to pull us out of the creek. <laughs> well, and that's what this is saying because I'm still on this page about the Popelick monster, the goat man or whatever of Louisville, yeah. Kentucky. Uh, that, peop that like people were told this to keep them off of the railroad trestle because it was very dangerous for you to be on this railroad bridge. You couldn't just jump off because yeah. you'd die. And if you can't jump off and there's a train coming, you're going to die either way. So <laughs> they tried to tell this to people to keep them off of the railroad trestle. But because people are fantastic, um, the legend has made people come to the area even more for what they call legend tripping in this. And there have been numerous deaths and accidents at this trestle um, despite the fact that there's like an eight-foot fence to keep people out because they get up there and then trains come across this several times a day. I mean, it's just not a good thing to do. People do it anyway. So that that would have been you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd had a little bit more sense than, than that, but not much more. <laughs> not <Yeah>. much more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thistley? Is there a turn? You got more? Ty, you got huh? more? No. No, is it? No, I just had to like dogs. I got stuff. 
We got stuff. Okay, so because when I talked to Christine, she and I like wrote some messages back and forth for quite a while. I don't know if I you guess, read the conversation, I but she's very cool. So, but um, I we went back and forth for a while, and I had asked her if there was anything that she wanted us to cover specifically, and. Well, she asked about black-eyed children, and I thought that Josh was going to talk about black-eyed children. Oh, snap. I thought you were. So, I didn't say <laughs> anything about black-eyed children. Like, I didn't make any notes. So... Guess who just erased that off of his phone? <laughs> well, while I read about my first one, why don't you go find something? One of y'all go find something about black-eyed children. Right. Okay. I'm there. Yeah. You're there? Cool. Or Close. <laughs> Give me just a few seconds. Minutes. You're fine. Do you want me to go ahead? Yes. yes. Okay. Because I have stuff, and this was this was really interesting for me to research because, like I said, I love to tell stories, um, and I thought this quote pretty much summed it up really good from this article that I read because uh, I was trying to research about why urban legends exist and why. They stand the test of time, and this one dude who is a folklorist, which I think would just be a super cool job, <laughs> he's a folklorist at the University of Wales. His name is Mikhail J. Coven, and he says, life is so much more interesting with monsters in it, and he's totally right. Hmm. So, with that, Christine also asked that we talked about, well, let me see if you can guess, if I were to turn the lights off and look in a mirror and light a candle. Bloody Mary. Yes, Bloody Mary. Yeah. So, but that's how it goes. The the old legend. You're supposed to stand in the bathroom. Um, sometimes it says with a candle lit, but we never, you know, I was always too much of a chicken to go and do Bloody Mary anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but you're supposed to stand in the bathroom with a candle lit, and you're supposed to say Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, three times. And supposedly... If you do it right, she's she will appear behind you in the mirror. Uh, sometimes the legend kind of varies. Sometimes it says that she's going to be holding a baby. Sometimes she's not holding a baby. Um, sometimes it says that she is just kind of appears in the mirror and that's it. Uh, sometimes it's like she's going to come through the mirror and kill you, whatever. So, but I like um, to research things like this, this urban legend that has some basis in fact and her history is actually pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So she was actually Queen Mary I, born eight, February 18th, 1516 in Gren Greenwich, England. She was the daughter of King Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon. Mm -hmm. So when she was 17, her father, because he was King Henry VIII, and this is just what he did, um, he had his marriage to her mother annulled. Mm -hmm. Because she could not get pregnant and provide him a male heir. And he was angry about it. <laughs> so yeah. he had the marriage annulled. And uh, I guess that she was then like sent away because um, Mary was never allowed to see her mother again after that. Yeah. So Henry then went on to marry Anne Boleyn, who was Catherine's friend and actually the maid of honor in her wedding to, you know, King Henry VIII. So awkward. But they got married, and guess what? There's a motorcycle that went by. Mm -hmm. But guess what? She was also unable to have a male heir, and uh, she ended up being beheaded, so it didn't matter anyway. Yeah. But there was a whole big to-do, because Catherine 
wanted her daughter, Elizabeth, to be in line for succession. So she asked Parliament to declare Mary illegitimate, and for some reason they did. So she was declared illegitimate. Regardless of all this plotting, planning, and scheming, Anne Boleyn lost her head, and Mary took the throne in 1553. Mm -hmm. She was 37. And immediately, she started trying to get pregnant. She married Philip of Spain. She wanted to have kids. And here's where things get a little strange. So, soon after she gets married, she becomes pregnant. I'm making air quotes with my fingers. Pregnant. Pregante. So, pregante. <laughs> so, her belly starts to swell, and her, you know, her breasts start to swell, and they get tender. It's... What happens? It's, you know, the circle of life. So <laughs> she is uh, pregnant. Her menstrual cycles stop. And this was not like a normal thing for her because history notes that her, history notes things about her cycles, which is kind of weird, but they do. Yeah. So they know that they were like, they were irregular, but they were extremely heavy and painful. And that's important for something that we talk about later. Yeah. But. She never skipped them, but they they stopped, you know. So everyone was kind of suspicious because Mary and Philip, they conceived very fast. Um, she was not very young to have babies. 37 is not that young even now to have babies. I mean, you can, obviously. Especially but, not then. Yeah, especially not then, though. That was being really... back then was, that was like, like ancient. Being, <laughs> that was like being 60 and trying to have like babies. It was like ancient. So people were kind of suspicious um, because of her age and because, I guess, that it was common knowledge that she always had, like, female problems, we'll say. So, but she continued to swell like her belly kept growing, and soon it was time for the baby to be born. Like, they kind of suspected that she'd be due in early May. So, but this was not a time in which you could just go do a home pregnancy test or have an ultrasound. So they had no way of knowing, like, if the baby was okay, is there a baby at all, like, what's going on, until the baby was actually born. So, oh, and there was also a rule at this time that prohibited doctors from from examining uh, the sitting monarchs. Yeah. So they couldn't examine her anyway to even find out. So... The the protocol at the time was six weeks before you were going to deliver a baby, you went into your private chambers and you stayed there until you delivered. So she goes in six weeks before her due date, and she waits, and she waits, and she waits. But there's no baby. So they thought maybe they were kind of off in their calculations. So she waited some more. They were like, maybe the baby's due in June. Maybe it's due in July. Maybe it's due in August. By the time August rolled around... There was still no baby. All these rumors were going around that either like she had had a baby or maybe it was stillborn or maybe mm -hmm. she uh, had a false pregnancy or maybe she had a tumor and that's what caused her to swell. Maybe she was dead. But eventually um, she did come out of her chambers in August. She stayed in there from May to August. No baby. Normal sized. Hmm. So... Yeah, and she was not very happy about it, and I don't blame I don't blame her. Like, that's a touchy subject for a lot of people, and I know that it would have been really hard. But she didn't have to react in the way that she did. Yeah, she she kind of took out her frustrations. She, uh, she took out her frustrations. Extreme. Yeah, 
At the time that she had of her pregnancy, we'll say, the people of England were divided between Protestants and Catholics. So she was determined to unite her people under the, quote, true religion of the land. And she took action by signing an act shortly before Christmas in 1554 that would result in the Marian per, uh, persecutions in which an estimated 240 men and 60 women were sentenced as Protestants and burned at the stake alive, mm-hmm. earning her the name Bloody Mary forevermore. Hmm. So to this day... um. The tale of Bloody Mary remains one of the most infamous cases of supposed pseudosiasis, which is phantom pregnancy. It's a very rare and mysterious condition. Um, It occurs, to put it simply, when somebody is so determined to become pregnant that they trick their body into believing that it is pregnant. Mm -hmm. And this, this leads to the physical symptoms, the swelling the you know the tender breasts uh, even to the discontinuation of the menstrual cycle uh some people se- speculate too that she could have had endometrial hyperplasia which is a precursor to uterine cancer and the reason that people think this is because if her cycles were so messed up that historians noted it mm-hmm. she had some issues going on and so a few years after she had this first false pregnancy she announced again that she was with child the same thing happened she started swelling up and you know getting her baby belly and whatever but this time folks really didn't even give her the benefit of the doubt and of course they were right um once she had exhibited the signs then they actually figured out that she was going into menopause so it was like the furthest thing from the truth that she was pregnant she you know, that there went her hopes right then of ever having a child. Mm-hmm. And she died the next year at 42, and they presume that just because of the way that the records note her cycles and everything, and even the swelling, yeah, um, it could have been uterine or ovar- ovarian cancer. So, that's what they speculate. But that is the, the true history of Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. I thought so, too. So, here's another one for you. But I wonder how it just got from being like that to being a, ch- a child's game of her. And that's the, yeah, and weird. that's the gray area that you yeah. can't really find much about. Yeah, it's just hmm. because like, I also want to know how that came about. Because I always thought it was based on Elizabeth Bathory. I always thought because of you know the the horrible deeds that Elizabeth Bathory did that it was that she because history history even calls her the bloody countess or bloody mm-hmm. Mary and I thought about talking about her too but, but she is interesting enough that you could save her for another day oh uh, well I mean you know it's that would be a good Halloween episode because we could we could do vampires on that one I actually vampires vampires actually that kind of fascinates me too. Yeah. But we'll save that for another day. I want to be talking about a vampire when we do the New Orleans stuff. Ooh. Yeah. Did you go to Marie Laveau's? I did. All right, cool. Yes. Cool. Okay. Here's... Also went to Marie Laveau's house. Ooh. What was your favorite part of New Orleans? Um, like things that we did or... Mine's the food. <laughs> Huh? Mine's the food. Absolutely the food. <laughs> like we did one tour though that was it was a historical slash 
It, it was the cemeteries and voodoo oh, tour. I want to go do that. And like that was fantastic because our tour guide was what really made it for us. Like he was into it, and like he went into about how you know voodoo isn't the you know devil worshiping religion that people think that it is. It's very spiritualistic mm -hmm. and everything. Mm -hmm. And like he really got into it, and it's like he said that he didn't practice voodoo, but he grew up around a lot of people that did. And uh, it really changed his view on things, like as he learned about it as he got older. So he, he said that he was on track to basically becoming a really bad thug. Like he was into a lot of bad things. And uh, then he started hanging around, hanging around with people that, you know, celebrated voodoo and everything. And uh, he started learning more and more about it. And that uh, really kind of turned, uh, turned things around for him. Like he was telling us all this in Louis Armstrong Park underneath the Spirit Oak. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is really cool. <laughs> it's one of my favorite places. It is. Yeah, it I is. could eat beignets from Cafe du Monde every day. I'm gonna learn how to make beignets. Cake, uh, you can get the actual doing. official Cafe du Monde mix at Food I'm, City. Nope, I'm gonna make it myself. You gonna make it yourself? I've done it that way. I want to make it myself. I've done it both. Yeah, I've done it, it both cost, ways. Yeah, it would cost you an arm and a leg. Who cares? I'll eat them. It's okay. I'll go off my diet for that day. Okay, okay. I'm going to read this to you in my official urban legend reading voice. And you got to tell me if you've heard of it. I'm sure you have because everybody has. A man and a woman went to a, a Las Vegas suite for their honeymoon and checked in to the hotel. When they got to their room, they both detected a bad smell. The husband called down to the front desk and asked to speak to the manager. I abandoned my creepy voice. <gasps> Another story. I'm interested now. Thank you. He explained <laughs> that the room smelled very bad and that they would like another one. <laughs> the manager apologized and told the man that they were all booked because of a convention. Oh no! He offered to send them to a restaurant of their choice, compliments of the hotel. So they went away, and then when they came back after their lunch, the room still smelled bad. Again, the husband called the front desk and told the manager that it still smelled bad. And the manager said they would try to find a suite at another hotel. All of them were sold out because of the convention. It doesn't say what kind of convention. I like to imagine it's like a crocheters convention or something. Just In Las Vegas? In Las Vegas. <laughs> they crochet things for strip clubs. It was probably the adult <laughs> video awards or well, something. Maybe. It was probably the The manager told the couple that they couldn't find them a room anywhere, but they would try to clean the room again. So they went to Sightsee and Gamble, and they would give them like two or three hours to come in and deep clean the room. When the couple left, the manager and all of the housekeeping went to the room to try to find out what was making the room smell so bad. They searched the entire room and found nothing. So the maids changed the sheets, changed the towels, took down the curtains, put up new ones, cleaned the carpet, cleaned everything. And then when they came back, it still smelled really bad. The husband was so angry and enraged at this point, he decided to try to find the source of the smell himself, and he legit tore the entire suite apart. As he angrily ripped the mattress off the top of the box spring, what did he find inside? A body. A body. But guess what? This really happened. Yeah. <laughs> More than once, it really happened. Uh -huh. So let me find this down here. Never mind. This account that comes from... The Bergen Record. The body of Saul Hernandez, 64, of Manhattan was found in room 112 of the Burgundy Motor Inn after two German tourists slept overnight in the bed despite a rancid smell that prompted them to complain to the front desk. 
The couple told motel officials that the smell Wednesday night, that about the smell Wednesday night, but stayed in the $36 a night room anyway. On Thursday, they complained again and were given a new room while a motel housekeeper cleaned room 112. And then, in July 2003, a cleaning crew discovered a dead body stuffed under a mattress in a room at the Capri, Capri Motel in Kansas City, Missouri. Police said that the man appeared to have been dead for some time, but the body went unnoticed until a guest staying in the room could no longer tolerate the smell. Officers were called to the Capri Motel. Um... The man who checked into the motel room a few days ago complained to management about the odor two times over the course of three days. He then checked out because he could not tolerate the smell. And then, in March 2010, Memphis police responded to a call from a local motel where employees had noticed a foul odor in one of the rooms. On March 15th, investigators were called back to room 222 at the Budget Inn where the body of Sony Milbrook Millbrook was found under the bed. Police say she was found inside a metal box frame that sits directly on the floor after someone reported smelling a strange odor. The box springs and mattress fit into the top of the bed frame. Room 222, according to investigators, had been rented five times and cleaned many times by the hotel staff since the day Millbrook was reported missing. Homicide investigators say Millbrook appears to have been murdered. Bum, hmm. bum, bum. I don't, hmm. I, don't think yeah. it, I don't think it was a good suicide spot. I mean, I just I'm crawl under this bed. I think I'm that they. I want to say that they <laughs> proved that her husband murdered her, but I could be wrong. But yes, so that urban legend is definitely based in truth because it happened. <laughs> and that was an essential part of the American Horror Stories uh, hotel series. Oh, yes. That was my favorite American Horror Story. It was the, yes. It I've was, not watched that one. Oh, it's, oh, so, it's good. so good. It's definitely the best one. I've only watched the first three. Oh, it's so good. Uh, then there's this one. You've heard this one too, I bet. watched one based in, based in New Orleans. The Witches. Yeah. The Coven. Coven. Yeah. yeah. The, hooked, and the Hooked Hand Man. A boy and a girl are parked in a lover's lane and are making out. Just when they're about yeah, so to go. She, she went from creepy voice to movie announcer voice. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, this is a family show. In a world where teenagers <laughs> are making out. <laughs> Just when they're about to go all, go all the way. An announcer with this voice comes on the radio and details that... A maniac has escaped from a local institution. He has a hook for a hand, and he warns everybody to be careful. The girl begins to freak out and asks the boy to please take her home. He's feeling a little let down, if you know what I mean, and frustrated, but he does as she asks. I have to explain this to our 10-year-old niece. (laughs) As he gets out of the car to walk her to the door, they realize that a hook has been embedded in the side of the car, ripped clean out of... The socket from where it once belonged. This legend dates back to the 1950s. So this is the, you know, this this one goes back pretty far. As far as urban legends go. Didn't this and, one like origi- originate as like an actual radio airing? Well, it was in Dear Abby. Oh. That I do know. It gained significant attention when it was reprinted in the advice column... Dear Abby in 1960, and it literally read this. I'm quoting. Dear Abby, 
If you're interested in teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. Yeah. The music was interrupted by an announcer <laughs> who said there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook for a hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her, and then he saw a hook on the door handle. I will never park to make out as long as I live. I hope this does the same for other kids from Jeanette. So, we talked about how urban legends sometimes uh, have morals attached to them. Well, this, <laughs> this was literally a morality <laughs> tale for teenagers. So, it was meant for chastity. Uh, in the classic version of the story, there's this implication that if the teenagers had stayed in that car and continued to make out or go all the way or whatever, they would have literally been murdered by the hook man. So, this story was designed to scare young people out of sexual activity. Um, of course, it's kind of, like... Failed. Misogynistic in a way, really. Because it's like... Failed. The, girls, the girl is like, no, it's her responsibility to say no. But it's also... Yeah. I'm not going to go into that. Wow. I mean... you Okay, if you go further into this, because this is interesting to me. If you go further into this, the Freudian interpretation of this... Pulling out the Freud... <laughs> This story holds that the hook found on the door handle severed from the killer's hand represents literal castration. So the boyfriend is trying to have sex. This voice on the radio, which represents the voice of authority or his own conscience, is like, no, don't do it. And then his girlfriend stops him and says that she wants to go home. At the same time that the story is, is supposedly warning against having sex, it illuminates man's fears about being emasculated when they can't get laid. That's literally what this article says. I think it goes a little bit too far into it. But there have been real cases in which young lovers were murdered while they were in parked cars in secluded areas. Yeah. Like, several of them. Um, also including the, the infamous Zod uh, Son of Sam murders. Yeah, Son of yeah. Sam, Zodiac. So, um, the Hook Man urban legend could be a generalization and exaggeration of those real-life stories. Mm -hmm. But... It came from the 50s in a time in which stuff like this could be used to yeah. strike the fear of... Well, put the yeah. fear of God well, in you. It was rightfully, it was rightfully, <laughs> the fear of hook. It was the right, fear of hook in you. It was rightfully so because, I don't know, I forgot what that program was I was watching on Netflix, but they said from the 50s to the 70s, something must have been in the water because that's when you're... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, your prolific serial killers or from yeah. the 50s to the 80s yeah. well, just, was just like, bloop, here we are. <laughs> and, it's just... and I got one more. This is my last one because I know that y'all want me to shut up. Okay. I don't care. I like I'm going to keep talking. I like your mysterious... Oh, okay. In a world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about Cropsy. Oh. Have you ever heard of Cropsy? Fun. I, I've not. You've, you've been teasing this for like a month now and... No, Tessa, no. Lularo's on sale, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> Cropsy is an urban legend that kind of is specific to Staten Island area. Um, he was rumored to be a homicidal madman, like an escaped mental patient. And, and here we go again, 
in usually in all the stories he has a hook for a hand. Oh, I was about to say Michael um, Myers. No. <laughs> okay. But supposedly in the in the stories, the legend that he hunts children and he like drags them back to this tunnel system that lay under the abandoned ruins of the old Seaview Hospital. Uh, which is a former tuberculosis sanitarium. Mm-hmm. So they even they've made movies and stuff about this. Um, there's a movie that a slasher movie that came out in '81 called The Burning. Um, it's like a cult classic, and it basically, I mean, says this this legend to a T. Pretty much, the cult classic is surprisingly faithful to the tale that Staten Island scouts once swapped over toasting marshmallows. It features a once respectable man named George Cropsey who goes insane after a prank gone wrong leaves him disfigured and he begins killing unsuspecting summer campers with an axe. So, you know, there's that. It's the whole child snatching thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in the 80s, children actually started disappearing from Staten Island, like for real. And soon this urban legend was not feeling like an urban legend because it was actually happening. And eventually they unmasked this Cropsey killer as Andre Rand. Now, Andre Rand was was a janitor at the Willowbrook State School on Staten Island. This place was not a fun place to be. It had the power, just to say its name, had the power to frighten people. Um, This institution was... A home for children with intellectual disabilities, but it was like a living hell. Really, it was. Um, especially in the 70s, but they, they eventually closed it in 1987. They experimented on kids they did. and everything. They yeah. were subjected... Wasn't this on Ghost Hunters? Or like one of those ghost paranormal shows that didn't like Zach Fagan and all of them visit this place? Maybe. I think Fagan, so, probably. Yeah. But... The children there were subjected to, like, sexual abuse, um, corporal punishment. There was, like, severe overcrowding. Uh, It was very unsanitary. They were malnourished. Then they would do very unethical medical experiments. Like he just said, electrocution. Um, In the name of hepatitis research, Mm -hmm. medical staff intentionally injected healthy children with the hepatitis virus. Yeah. And many of these kids became like severely ill. Some of them died because of this. Public, at the, like the public in general, was not aware of the conditions of this school on the inside. Um, many of these kids had been abandoned by their parents, just dropped off into this hospital and the foster care system. There was like little to no accountability because nobody cared particularly yeah. about these children. Yep. So, in 72, a young Geraldo Rivera went in and he did an expose. That's where I heard yeah. this from. This Geraldo, is where I heard this from. Yeah. he did an expose that revealed, you know, the terrible conditions of yeah. the inside of this hospital. It was like a scandal. It was really bad. And this school was officially closed, but not until 15 years later. Yeah. Um, but negative publicity contributed to the successful passage of federal civil rights legislation that protects the mentally disabled. So that's like the one good thing that came out of this. Which unfortunately wasn't passed until what, like 83? Right. Yeah. And you can actually go on YouTube and watch this. You can go and watch his um, going in there and doing this. So the same year that all of this was going down, 
uh, Rand, back to him, he was a janitor at the school. And he was arrested in connection with the disappearance of a 12-year-old girl who had Down syndrome. Uh, her name was Jennifer, Sh uh, it, this last name, it's either Schweiger or Schweiger. So, we'll just call her Jennifer, that's her first name. <laughs> she, she disappeared. Um, at the time that this happened, he was homeless, kind of like living in an abandoned... Well, I guess this was after the school closed, but he had been a janitor. He was living in the abandoned school, like just squatting there. Um, also, because you know how I said in the beginning of the legend that like it was something with the Seabrook Mental Institution too, like mm -hmm. the people believe that he crops he lives there. Um, well, it's like right down the street from where this is. They're very close to each other, so that kind of lends itself to the the legend. But she disappeared. Eventually, they found her body in a shallow grave on the property of Willowbrook School. So, at this time that this happened, Rand has already worked up a long... He has a long rap sheet. And all of his crimes are against children. So, it's in 1969... Yeah. In 1969, he went to jail for 16 months for attempting to sexually assault a nine-year-old. Because he's a piece of trash. In 1983... He went to jail again after kidnapping a bus full of children, a whole bus full of children from the local YMCA and driving them to, to an airport. I don't know what he was going to do with them when he got there. If he was going to take them on a plane, I don't know. He kidnapped a bus full of children. So there was not enough physical evidence to charge him, um... But police already suspected him in the disappearance of other... Of like, wait, the, wait, there wasn't enough physical evidence when he, he stole a bus full of children? No, when he... With the disappearance of the 12-year-old Jennifer. Oh, okay. There was... Yeah, yeah I should have elaborated I jumped the gun that. a little bit. I'm so sorry. There was not enough physical evidence to charge him with that. But police already suspected him in the disappearances of four other Staten Island children going back more than a decade. So there was... Alice Pereira, who was five, she disappeared in 1972. Holly Ann Hughes, who was seven and disappeared in 1981, and was last spotted with Rand on the day of her disappearance. Like, people saw them together, and then she disappeared. 11-year-old um, Tiahis Jackson, who disappeared in 1983, and Hank Gaforio, who was a mentally disabled 22-year-old, also last seen with Rand, at a diner in 1984, the day that he disappeared. To this day, none of these bodies have ever been found. What? Yeah. The jury for Rand's case could not reach a verdict on the murder charge because there was not enough physical evidence. There was a body, yeah. Yeah, there was no, there was no body. There was no you know, evidence of his direct involvement in Jennifer's death. But they did find him guilty of kidnapping, and he received a sentence of 25 years in prison. He would have been eligible for parole in 2008, but in 2004, new evidence came to light linking him to the disappearance of Holly Ann Hughes. A fellow inmate took notes of conversations he had with Rand in which Rand described in detail his abduction of Holly Ann Hughes. So he was convicted on a second kidnapping charge and given another 25-year sentence because of that. And now he will not be eligible for parole until 2037, and he will be 93. But that's where the Cropsy legend comes from, is that. From real child abductions. God, that's, that's freaky. 
Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. So, but the Urban, Geraldo thing is on YouTube. If you know, if you if anybody wants to check it out, Urban hmm. Legends that are based in fact are scarier. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they happened. So, yeah. and, and that had. And that has to be the inspiration behind Wes Craven. And if you if you look if you look at him, let me show you a picture of him. He just he totally looks like. Does he look like Robert England? He it's weird. (laughs) He looks. You can just look at his um, face and know that he totally is just a creeper. Oh, huh? They don't look real. I know. He looks does like, look like Robert England. Looks like something out of the Twilight. He zone. really kind of does look like Robert. He England. looks like Robert England. That's weird. Yeah, that's the real Freddy like, Krueger. <laughs> they're taking taking him out, and like he's drooling, and nice. yeah, he's looking at that picture. Well, does just, that not just give you the chills? Anyway. Well, does he does he not look like Robert anyway, England? <laughs> but like this is the little Jennifer girl that he that he killed. It's so sad. The jerk. But yeah, that's like, Andre, Andre pull, Rand. Pull that picture up of him again. <laughs> Which one? The first one? Yeah. Kind of in the yeah. nose? Oh my yeah. gosh, he kind of does. Yeah. Forehead? Like, like yeah. the shape of his face and everything? I wish y'all could see this. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make a post about it later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh speaking of which, uh, Robert Englund, uh, Kane Hodder, uh, the guy that played Pinhead uh-huh. are all going to be at Knoxville Comic Con. So. Ooh. <laughs> Fun. Yeah. Because we're, right. we're at an hour and 20 minutes. Well, so this, this is going to be fast because it's it's sort of a newer, it's it's the legend of the black-eyed children. And uh, I've been reading some while Tessa was, was on her. All right. On her bit. The, uh, the legend of the black-eyed peas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is one of the newer, it is one of the newer urban legends in the United States. Uh, and because of the invention of the internet, uh, it has uh, spread like wildfire. But the legend usually uh, involves a young boy and a young girl who are about the age of 10, and no one knows where they come from or how they appear, but all accounts of seeing them are terrifying and will leave chills running down whoever sees them. Uh, Conspiracy theorists believe that the black-eyed children are aliens who are trying to call home. Demonologists believed that they are children of the devil himself, uh, and if you let one, if you let them in, you're allowing the devil to enter your life. Um, all they want is to come into your house to call their parents, but after they make eye contact with you, they seem to have more sinister uh, a sinister plot. Uh, and all witnesses have one thing in common: jet black pools, jet black pools of inky darkness. And they all say that kind of like a vampire, you they they can't come into your house unless you say it's okay for them to come into your house. Um, but the actual legend of the Black Eyed Children started in a snowy town in the middle of nowhere, Vermont. That's where that's how that's how this article starts off. Nowhere, yeah. Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming it's out in the out in the boondocks. Um, a Vermont elderly couple awakes to three loud knocks on their door. They get they get up 
open the door and are greeted by two children, a boy and a girl. Hello. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're telling the older couple that their parents is, will be here soon. Can they come in? The children did not make eye contact with the elderly people. They just stood in the doorway. The elderly couple, after much hesitation, allowed the children to come in. The kids were seated at the couch, and while the wife made some hot chocolate, and the husband asked them questions, that all went unanswered. The wife returned and noticed that her cat was scared and angry at the children while she hid under a couch. While well, the cat hid under a couch. And they asked the elderly couple, can they use the restroom? And when the wife looked up to answer the kids, she finally saw the children's eyes were black as starless universe, as a starless universe. She directed them to the bathroom and returned to her husband, who was covering his face with his hands. And when he removed his hands, he was bleeding from the nose. Hmm. At this time, the power went out. And... The report says that the, 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 the elderly couple said that the house was as dark as the kids' eyes. The wife headed to the restroom but was intercepted by the voice of the kids saying that their parents had arrived. The kids then ex exited the house, leaving the door wide open. The wife and the husband then noticed that there were two men at the end of the driveway. The men were very tall and slender. The wife waved to the men but did not receive the friendly gesture in return. Hmm. The two men and the children then drove away together in one car. When the power came back on, oh, the power came back on a little later after the kids left. And throughout the week, weird things started happening in the house. Three of the four of the cats went missing, and the fourth had been found dead in the pool of its own blood. The husband continued to have nosebleeds and finally went to the doctor there and was diagnosed with a very aggressive skin cancer. Mm -hmm. Oh. But the real-life legend... The real history, the one that started it, was by, uh, in 96 by a man named Brian Bethel. Mm -hmm. He was at a gas station where he was approached by two young boys with black pupils. After he encountered Bethel, he then shared his story on the internet, which then had a huge effect because it started spiraling down. Yeah. Uh, this... Then made it the sharing the story on the internet made it primed, um, and that's what kind of what Tessa was talking about there. I forgot what she was talking about, but um, this this phenomenon is called priming, and it's where a pre-suggestion is already being planted in people's minds, and then they just make up their own stories. You know, they just they seem to exaggerate more and more and more of the story. Um, and this would explain why the sightings have gone up around the nation. And the author of this article goes on to believe, you know, goes on to say that it's kind of like believing in Santa Claus when you're younger. Uh, it was primed into our heads. Mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's just trying to kind of to, uh, explain some of the psychology behind it. <clears throat> so, yeah. Hmm. That's the legend of the black-eyed children. But all the, all the uh, reports are the same afterwards that that people you know all theories have and this gives you a list of theories and stuff that you can that you can look up uh on youtube people actually videotaping air quotations yeah, yeah. <laughs> actual like, footage actual footage of black-eyed children in the forest and whatnot <laughs> and all that stuff but uh 
the largest theory is the aliens. So yeah, it's alien children. Aliens, demons, so. ghosts. Yep. But that's all I have. Does Tannis have a like almost a whole season based around Black Eyed Children? I don't know. Maybe. I think it does. I've never listened to Tannis, but I need to. You should listen to Tannis because it's really, really good. Have you listened to S Town? S Town? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, that's next for you. Okay, I'm <laughs> listening to Dark Archive eighty one right now. I'm into SCPs right now. So SCPs are fun. They're the Holder series is really fun if you ever want to try to find that one. That one's a hard one to track down. Like, it's on an old archived website. Yeah. That's cool. I'll find the link and I'll send it to you. That's cool. Yeah. 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 That would be a good one. Oh, that one have nothing to do with history. I was say the SCP. <laughs> I feel like we should almost have a secondary podcast at some point. I feel like we should too. <laughs> Maybe that could be bonus episodes. Yeah. It's just us talking about weird stuff. Yeah. There you go. Let us know if that's what you want. If that's what you want for Patreon. <laughs> is us talking about weird stuff. Weird stuff. Weird stuff. Weird stuff. That we just kind of happen to glance There's on. Many there. more <laughs> urban legends that we can talk about. Oh, yeah. Urban legends, ghosts. Spoopy stuff. Spoopy stuff. Spoopy stuff. Christine, I hope that you liked that. <laughs> hope that answers your question. Yes. <laughs> we hope that you liked that. I, I we I enjoyed it. I thoroughly I really did enjoy it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was good. So I think we've got the next couple of episodes lined up too. <laughs> Inadvertently. We do. Yeah. We didn't really episodes. We didn't really mean to line up the episodes like that. But it's just like that day that we were like, You remember this toy? And then we run off on a tangent for an hour yeah. and a half. Almost like the exact opposite. Instead of us being overly productive, we were very counterproductive. We were very counterproductive. <laughs> so counterproductive that we made a whole episode about it. Yeah. Because originally, the episode that we were going to record was about Chernobyl and Fukushima. Uh, that ended up not happening because I was gone and then had migraines when I came back. Yeah. And then we didn't record last weekend because Tesla was dying. I mean, do you, do you know that people are literally going to out. Chernobyl... And taking sexy photo sexy shoots. photo shoots. That's hilarious. Like in lingerie and stuff like that. You gonna die. You gonna have radioactive nipples. Yeah. <laughs> and and the government the government there literally addressed them and said, We can't believe we're telling you people to do this. Stop. <laughs> Stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> so I think the way that we were gonna do it was the next one is going to be about New Orleans while it's still fresh in my brain and I still have all this information we can do some New Orleans. before Sorry. I lose yeah. it. Before I lose it. And then uh, after that, we'll do Chernobyl and Fukushima. Sounds good to me. Yeah. It's fine by me. Thank you, Miss Christine, for this awesome episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you've got something that you want us to do, send us a, send us a message. And we'll see if we can do it. Yeah. No, I would not be talking about John Dillinger's massive member. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God love. Yeah, or John, or uh, or uh, uh, John Wayne Bobbitt's detachable member <laughs> on Instagram. Introducing that. the severed parts. <laughs> on Instagram, that happened to be one of the most talked on things that we've done was when really I posted was. about John Dillinger's yeah. thing. All right, we'll wrap this up. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, bah! Work in the. 
My where can, where can the people find us? You can find us on everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History by Idiots. Uh, once again, we no longer have a website, but you can still listen to us on our Buzzsprout website, which is historybyidiots.buzzsprout.com. And all the other places that you listen to your podcast. Yeah, and our email address is now historybyidiots at gmail.com. And you can find us on Patreon, even though, uh, well, we're working on it. It's yeah. happening. <laughs> We've said this for a year, but things actually are happening. We're going to do stuff. Yeah, we are. So, you just watch and see. Yeah. Love history. Love your libraries. <laughs> and love yourself. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs>